Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Nine. Twelve. Ten. Twenty-eight. Two. Twenty-three. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. Uh, This is David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I am so glad to be back in the United States of America Uh, Although my trip to Asia for the past month was really eye-opening, and perhaps we'll get to some of that. We're joined today by Rosa Brooks, who's, as usual, at a Mediterranean villa, uh, luxuriating in uh, uh, not being in the United States, I think. Um, And by Evelyn Farkas, who is uh, in Northwest D.C., and of course is with the Atlantic Council, and with Corey Shockey, who is, as ever, in London and is with double I, double S. Um, I'm so happy to be back with the Ball Club on Deep State Radio. Well, we are so happy to have you back. Uh, You have not been um, uh, idle in the absence from this show. And I wanted to start with that because you wrote an important column about American leadership Uh, and American values and where we were going with that for the New York Times. And I just thought perhaps you you, you would share some of your thinking behind that column and we could start our conversation there. I so love it when you pitch stuff slow and over the plate to me, fearless leader. Thank you, David. You you mean by saying, Corey, you wrote something brilliant. Would you? (laughs) Yes, that's called a big fat hanger over the plate. Uh, So as our deep state radio nerds know, I ordinarily wear the tiara of optimism and can pull a silver lining out of almost any cloud. But the combination of our president's behavior towards America's closest friends and strongest allies at the G7 meeting, and then his shocking embrace of the world's worst human rights violator at the summit in Singapore with the North Korean leadership actually really rattled me that we may, that if President Trump continues in this vein and Americans continue to support those policies, we are actually looking at the end of the liberal order. And And two things struck me. The first is how sloppy we are when we talk about the rules-based order, the liberal order, and that my mom doesn't understand what I'm talking about when I talk about that. So I tried to find a way to explain both what we mean when we talk about the liberal order and why the United States built it out of the ashes of World War II. Because I think there is this effort on the part of destructive forces like the president and his closest advisors to treat the liberal order as though it's somehow 
a bunch of leftist academics hanging around the faculty lounge talking about how to shackle the United States in opposition to our interests, instead of appreciating that the hard men who had fought Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan and who did not take our victory in World War II as even the likeliest outcome we were facing, were so scared by the prospect of another period of interwar years that they voluntarily limited American power through norms and institutions and provided security guarantees, deep commitments to countries that share our values, and tried to build a group of like-minded states that would voluntarily cooperate with each other to share the burden of preventing another catastrophe of the kind that they lived through and fought through in World War II. That's the basis of this order. And that is what President Trump and the people closest to him are bent on destroying. And it actually genuinely scares me that we will have to describe someday to our children why we did this. And we will talk about this time as the interwar years. And I really don't want us to do that. Well, I, you know, first of all, it's I, the reason I asked you to bring it up was not just to be nice to you, but because I think it's a really, really important point. And it's not just important because it's true. It's also important because you're not mythologizing the U.S. in making this point. You're not saying we are somehow above reproach or that we somehow live up to our own uh, sort of advertising slogans about ourselves. Uh, you're simply saying that we did this in a self-interested way that had positive implications for the rest of the world and that we are now seemingly unthinkingly pulling away from it. It leads me to turn to you, Rosa, and, and ask, first of all, how do you feel about sharing the thorny crown of entropy with Corey on this. <laughs> I'll share. Corey is my friend and she is absolutely right as usual. And she, I've saved her a whole bunch of thorns. Oh. <laughs> I thank you, my friend. <laughs> I will, I will weave them together into, wow, if not a thorny crown, I might put some flowers in it and, and create a Hey, little... wait a minute here. Hold on a second. You can't put that flowers I, in my thorns. I, I, think, I, think, I think you're missing the point here, Craig. Um, but, but... You, may be, you may be right, David. Yeah, but Rosa, as we, as we think about this, as, you know, Corey wrote this a few days ago, and it seems to have gotten worse in the course of the few days. Um, it, and just, you know, to give you two examples, one, in terms of the alliance, the, 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 the president of the United States launched out with a series of tweets against the German leadership, the German government, the way Germans were handling immigration. He lied, as he is prone to do, suggesting that crime was up in Germany. It's actually down. Um, and, uh, you know, thus seem to suggest that the egregious behavior of our terrible ambassador in Germany, uh, Rick Grinnell, 
is actually administration policy at this point. The president believes it. The ambassador believes it. You've got to believe it's actually the policy. And of course, the other thing that's been happening now that impacts uh, you know, America and this global order is that we seem to be undermining the principles of that global order. Again, not saying that we're always perfect, but when you start embracing the idea of concentration camps for kids uh, or uh, pulling families apart uh, on the border who are seeking asylum and have done nothing illegal at that point, um, uh, or even pulling them apart after they've done something illegal, uh, which seems inhumane in the United States uh, human rights, uh, uh, head of human rights, the UN has, has flagged this. This is just in the past couple of days, but it seems like what Corey is warning of is 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 growing more um, critical a risk all the time. No, I, I think that's that's right. And, you know, it is very striking to me that, that you know, Corey and I have different political backgrounds. Corey's been a lifelong Republican. I've, I've been a lifelong Democrat. Uh, and I think when you reach the point where people like Corey are feeling that their party has left them behind and that indeed the, the country is beginning to leave them behind because the official acts of the country are, are, are so completely out of character with this country's best ideals. And, and uh, that it says something. And I, I think what we're what we have seen since Trump was elected is that the Republicans with consciences uh, and a sense of history have fled the party uh, or the party has left them. Um, and the people who are left, you know, the only people left are the people who are completely, completely shameless, basically. Um, because that is what our, our foreign policy and our domestic policy is becoming, completely shameless, which doesn't particularly surprise me because as I have said before, uh, you know, we need to just say we have a president who is a sadistic, narcissistic sociopath and none too bright on top of it. You know, that's who is leading our country. Uh, and the people who are enamored of him, uh, I, I hate to think, I hate to think either they are deeply ignorant uh, or they are not so nice people. Well, and, you know, there, there has been some actual movement from some in the Republican Party who seem to recognize that this behavior on the border um, is egregious and it's needs beyond to, the pale. Yeah. yeah. No, no. So, I, I mean, so, so I Laura, mean, Laura Bush, uh, Jeb Bush, uh, the Republican governor of Massachusetts has pulled their National Guard away right. from the border. Even, They're, you know, conservative radio host Hugh Hewitt was going after was going after them about this. You know, I, I mean, it's hard to be the party that for so long has has claimed or sought to claim the mantle of being pro-family and pro-morality and be tearing five-year-olds away from their crying parents in order to what? Teach the Democrats a lesson? Teach somebody a lesson? You know, it, there's, there's no justification for using children in that way. Well, it's gotten, you know, sort of beyond where anybody had imagined, both in terms of... Um, the, you know, putting children in cages and breaking up families and doing it as, as Representative Adam Schiff uh, uh, put it, so I, I think eloquently, 
to use the tears of children uh, as the mortar to with which to build a wall. In other words, to use this as a, you know for political purposes. Um, but it, but even having said that, the administration is lying about it. Uh, the defenders of the administration have adopted some really outrageous perspectives, including Ann Coulter uh, suggesting that um, that the children crying on camera were child actors. You know that this was a complete fraud. And it brings us to a point, Evelyn, which you, as somebody who's been active uh, in uh, the, uh, the the government for, uh, uh, in, uh, you know. 20 years, you can say it. Okay, 20 years. Not just the blink of an eye. Did yeah. you ever, did you ever imagine in the course of the time that you'd been involved in the government that we get to the point where the primary intellectual driver behind American policy and Americans standing in the world would be Stephen Miller. No. And what's shocking to me is the child of Hungarian immigrants who fled communism and lived through World War II and the interwar years, and certainly in the case of my father, um, is, is that we're at this point now where we have people who espouse policies that are, let's just name them, neo-fascist in the White House. And we have a president using very much the tactics and the rhetoric of fascists. And I say this because, uh, you know, it's not that I, I mean, I, I can, I can see these things on my own, having studied, you know, fascism, all the isms growing up, but there are also, you know, there's one, one excellent book after another, you know, trying to call America's attention to all this. Now, some of these books are a little too dense, so people aren't reading them, but Tim Schneider's The Road to Unfreedom. And then there's a there's one that hasn't come out yet, which actually is more accessible. I've got a uh, like a proof of it, and it's called How Fascism Works. And it's basically the checklist. And what's what's alarming to me is that, you know, these books really give you a very cookie-cutter, um, you know, sanitized checklist of what you need to do if you're about to bring your country down a fascist path. And I actually think, you know, I was having lunch with a mutual friend of many of ours today, um, Susan Glasser, and I was saying, you know, I almost think this, some of this started with Syria because we did nothing in the face of the horrendous atrocities that were visited upon the Syrian people. And the fact that we could turn our back against them we, the United States, the number one superpower, and not feel any, any real remorse about it, frankly speaking, at an official level, uh, led then maybe to our ability to ignore what happened to the Rohingya and now ignore what's happening. Well, we're not ignoring it. I mean, I think many people are speaking up about what's happening to these children. But there are many things, many humanitarian assaults on humans <laughs> that we have turned a blind eye to. And all of this, the, the, the repeated process does change people's mindset. And the mindset, the most dangerous mindset that you get to at the end of all of this is a mindset where you think nothing can change. You can't do anything to change your government's policies. You can't do anything to change your status in life. And there you have it. Everything's frozen. And then you have, you know, the perfect 
recipe for Trump staying in office and being, you know, who he is, the guy who thinks he's going to deliver things to us. So, I mean, there are many things I can say on this topic, but I think that's kind of the big picture thing is that people really need to be on the alert, not to let themselves feel hopeless in the face of everything that's happening and to really find the energy to do whatever it is in their community. And now I'm speaking to the deep state nerds, you know, get out from behind your laptop, you know, or your desk or your WeWork or whatever, you know, and go register to vote, go hand out flyers for whatever candidate you like, go demonstrate against the treatment of these children. You know, if they're, if, if they're found to be doing something illegal and they need to be incarcerated, fine, but do it with the parents. I mean, I made this point to some hardline Republicans over the weekend as well. So that's my quick rant. I don't know if it was even quick enough. Well, it was, it was, it was, <laughs> it, with time is not of the essence here when you're saying things that are that important. And, and the reality is, I don't think it's a rant. And I, I think that's part of the problem that we face here is that the language sounds very extreme it sounds like a kind of language we've never used before. Um, and, and a lot of people in the Republican Party push back on it. Um, when, when analogies are made with Japanese internment camps or the Nazis, you know, Corey, one of the incidents that I found quite striking on this was General Mike Hayden, who I think very highly of and who has devoted his life to service of the country and is a moderate, thoughtful guy. Um, not a hothead by any means, um, posted something on Twitter, which was a picture of the, the railroads leading into Auschwitz. And essentially he was saying, look, we have to be aware of this. We have to be aware that this looming threat is not um, so impossible, so beyond um, uh, you know, thinking uh, that, it's, that it's unreal, you know, it's unrealistic. And a lot of people dumped on him and said, well, you're being unpatriotic or where do you get your stars or what are you talking about? How dare you compare these people to Nazis? And, you know, I, my reaction was kind of the opposite. My reaction is, how dare you not? How dare you not raise the issue of fascism? How dare you not raise the issue of what the stakes are in all of this? Particularly when the president, you know, when we lose all this in the fog of Trump, but just a couple of days ago, was talking about Kim Jong-un and how everybody sits up when he says stuff in his dictatorship, his brutal totalitarian dictatorship. And Trump said, I wish they did that here. You know, and, and, and you're starting yeah. to think, holy mackerel. And so, yeah, that was one of my data points. Yeah, well, yeah. it was so Corey, I'm just, you know, I mean, you, you saw all this exchange and you are very moderate thoughtful, not hot-headed person. But do you think it's inappropriate to use this kind of language right now? No, I actually don't. Um, and it grieves me to say so, because I wish it. I could still laugh about the president, you know, meeting the Ben Wittes standard of malevolence outpaced by incompetence. But the president's starting to make consequential choices. And uh, the, the early outrages like the travel ban, the courts got in there quickly, civil society got in there quickly. And I'm a little bit fearful that the constant barrage of outrage is dulling people's sensibilities. But 
but separating children from their parents and parents who came here for asylum, that if that's who we are as a country, we actually don't deserve to think ourselves a city on the hill, or and we don't deserve to recite the poem that Emma Lazarus wrote that's carved in the base of the Statue of Liberty, and we don't deserve to say we hold these truths to be self-evident. Well, yeah, you know, I mean, I find it kind of bizarre in this whole debate, you know, occasionally I'll see something, uh, you know, on some social um, um, medium and, you know, some Republican will say, well, you know, the, the Emma Lazarus poem was written long after the Constitution and you know, it's it's not binding, and you know this is this is the way we have to protect ourselves, and 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 you know trying to justify what seems unjustifiable. Um, but but Rosa, one of the other things that strikes me is, you know, there are eleven thousand or so children who are apparently in this program, um, and it's horrible, and there will be more in it. Uh, Thirty thousand is one estimate by the end of the year, and that's horrible. Um, but but there are millions of children who are living in, in terror that their parents are going to be grabbed off the street and they'll never see them again. And there are millions of children who are living in terror that they, uh, they may actually be gunned down in their schools because of our gun laws. And there are thousands and thousands of children, undoubtedly uh, hundreds, uh, who, who perhaps died as a result of the, the, the administration's decisions about Puerto Rico. Um, in other words, what's going on on the border is terrible, but it may not be the worst of the things that's going on right now. No, and and I, I want to wholeheartedly agree with everything you and Corey and Evelyn have said, but I also do think that it's important to remember that some of this horrible stuff started a pretty long time ago under Clinton, was continued under Bush, was continued under Obama. The, the difference, there's a difference that both has to do with scale under Trump and that has to do with the, it's interesting, I, I, so, so, actually let me back up a step and say, I, you know, I was thinking about this a lot. One of the very first things I did in my long ago career as a human rights lawyer was a report for Human Rights Watch. This is back in 1996 on unaccompanied children detained by the U.S. Immigration Service. And there were a lot of them then, and we put a lot of them in, in, in juvenile prisons, even though they were administrative detainees who had done nothing wrong. And indeed, they were, they were the kind of kids who you would think America would be desperately trying to recruit, right? These were, you know, 13-year-old girls who had walked here from Guatemala, you know, and, and you'd think, isn't that the kind of person we need in this country? Um, but they were, we put them in jail, basically. I, I mean, there, that, there are fancier words where we say, oh, we're just detaining them, et cetera, but we were putting them in jail, literal jail, uh, both privately operated detention facilities and actual juvenile detention, criminal detention facilities. Um, and it was awful. It was awful then. And this is, of course, you know, more than 20 years ago. Uh, it's awful now. Um, we have you know, then too, we separated families at times. Um, so what's the difference between then and now, right? I think the difference is that then we didn't do it as a deliberate policy. Uh, and when it happened, we had the good grace, our government had the good grace to be ashamed of it 
and often to try to lie about whether it was happening. And you may say, well, that's not so great, but it's, you know, remember the old whoever it was who said that uh, hypocrisy is the homage that vice pays to virtue. You know, that when, when you're hypocritical, at least you're acknowledging, uh, however implicitly, that there is a right and there is a wrong. And I think the, the thing that shocks me about what's going on now is not that we are detaining children. It's not that we are deporting people uh, who are asylum seekers. It's not that we are uh, separating families and so forth. Uh, what sh- because we have, we, it is unfortunately the case that we have done that for decades. Um, but what is different now is both the scale, but in some ways even more crucially, the fact that we apparently no longer have the grace to even feel ashamed of it that the Trump administration, if anything, seems rather proud of it. And that's really shocking in a sense. And that, you know, in terms of the distortion of our moral compass, uh, you know, that, but I do think that the, I think it's a mistake to imagine Donald Trump as this abrupt rupture from the past, because that is part of what ends up blinding us to the ways in which fascism and other pretty nasty isms creep up on us, you know, that they don't, they don't happen all of a sudden. We lay the groundwork over many, many years, and then somebody comes along who can who can tap that vein, who can exploit the ways in which we have we have allowed ourselves to become hard-hearted. We have allowed horrific things to become normalized, you know. And we have. I mean, I think that's true on immigration. I think it's true on the other issues that you've mentioned in terms of lack of interest in dealing with the problems of people who are very, very poor and who lack access to basic services. Lack of lack of interest in facing up to mass incarceration uh, in the United States, which is stunning. If you stop and think about it for five seconds, it's it's stunning. It's morally shocking. It's politically impossible in a democracy to keep that up, and so forth. You know, if you think about it from the perspective of our foreign policy, both our acts and emissions, that that we have over over decades we have normalized slowly and surely all sorts of appalling things, creating a situation that then becomes ripe for a completely conscienceless person to come and not even bother to be hypocritical anymore, you know, that we, and we barely even notice most of us, right? We go, well, you know, what's, what's the difference? So, so I, I think, I mean, I think that's a, that's a, a hard idea to hold in our minds to simultaneously say, this is what Trump is doing is different. It really is different. But to do that without somehow whitewashing prior administrations and and without whitewashing prior periods of American history. Um, So I think something has changed, but it's important to keep in mind that maybe what has changed is that we have become so dulled by tolerating so many awful things for so long that when when a, a genuine fascist comes along, a lot of us don't even notice or we're happy to embrace it. Yeah, well, you know, Evelyn, this point that that Rose is making, I think, is extremely important and the kind that tends not to be made on cable television news shows where everybody's shouting and where... Easy, easy. Well, we we all spend our time on those shows, but but they tend to be us versus them, one side against another side. And you tend to lose a little actually, bit of perspective. I, I differ with you. I actually think nowadays on cable TV, everyone's agreeing with one another, which is worse. But go on. Sorry. Okay. Well, fine. I, 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 I haven't seen that element of 
of cable TV, but I've been out of the country for a month. Uh, what 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 I have seen is is a lot of people saying, you know, it's all Trump or wasn't Obama great or whatever. Obama deported twice as many people in his first term as Bush did in two terms. Um, and what has happened in the United States is, as Rosa implies, on a wide variety of issues, people in a desire to look strong or look tough have remained silent on things. And immigration is one of them. Uh, we certainly have seen that on guns and gun control. Uh, we've seen it on, on, um, on issues like torture or the use of drones against other countries where, you know, it's, it's just there is a gradual breakdown over a period of decades where people stop sort of saying the values are most important and start playing some political calculus. And it just sets the stage for somebody who comes along who's actually fundamentally evil in his impulses um, and to take advantage of all those silences. And, you know, Donald Trump's popularity rating today, the day we're taping this, is the highest it's been since he took office. <sighs> yeah. Well, I think, I think he doesn't have any values. And what he is doing is eroding America's sense of its own values. You know, this is a country that was founded upon values. You know, the number one value, well, I mean... Obviously, freedom, equality, you know, the right to the pursuit of happiness, whatever that means. <laughs> I mean, so we, we had a very clear sense of what our values were when we founded our republic. Granted, we didn't apply them equally, actually. You know, we were an immediate violation of our own values, in a sense, right from the start because of what we did to Native Americans and African Americans. But, you know, we had these values. They were important over time. You know, we have, I think, become more faithful to our values. We're, we're a work in progress as a republic. But without values, I don't think we're that different from other countries. You know, last night I was at a U2 concert. You knew that rock and roll would come into this somehow. Um, but, uh, and Bono's pretty, and Bono. it's, it's great to see that old people like U2 can still be employed. <laughs> yeah. Actually, you know what? I thought Bono would be like, would be older <laughs> because, because, well, I was a you know, youth when he was singing away, but apparently he's only 58. That's not that old in the grand scheme of things. Um, anyway, he was, uh, I, he wow. Was, we have become the Super Bowl halftime show, my friends. Yeah. yeah. So uncool. Well, so, but, but terribly uncool, but I happen to love the direction she was going with that. Well, where I'm going is that <laughs> he's worked up too. And so last night in this concert, he had so many messages for us, you know, the shining city on the hill. And then he would have children going in school buses wearing military helmets, you know, because why? Because they're going to a war zone in their schools, you know. Um, you know, he had a lot of messages about um, Me Too movement, you know, no one's equal until everyone's equal. Um, I, you know, I, you go down the list. He had a nuclear thing, too. I, the acoustics were a little bit bad on his verbal, like when he was speaking to us, but I did hear him say Kim Jong-un. <laughs> so there was something in there about Kim Jong-un as well. Um, but I, but he said, you know, America is special, you know, he's an Irishman, let's not forget. Right. So 
To him, America was always very special, the shining city on the hill, and he's worried. And I appreciated what he did there with his message. And, you know, my friend said to me, I hope he does this everywhere he plays, you know, and I'm sure he does. And there's maybe some self-selection about the people who go to see him play. But um, I don't know. I got I swerved off onto Bono. But um, now I don't remember your original question. My apologies. (laughs) Okay. I got excited. I was visualizing him, you know, his his whole set and everything. You know, before we leave Bono or, or, or John Winthrop, as the case may be, um, I, I mentioned this in a previous episode, but it is probably worth remembering once again that when John Winthrop gave his famous uh, so-called Arabella sermon, the uh, a model of Christian charity from which the, the phrase, we shall be as a city upon a hill, the eyes of the world are upon us. Uh, when he gave that sermon, it was a warning, not a promise. And he, he sort of says, well, if we're, if we're nice and we... We entertain each other in brotherly affection and we abridge ourselves of our superfluities for the supply of others' necessity, et cetera, uh, then everybody's going to love us and God's going to like us. And he goes on and there's a, there's a lot of uh, uh, suggestion that we should be meek, gentle, patient, liberal, make others' conditions our own, labor and suffer together. It's kind of socialist, golly. Um, etc. that the Lord will be our God and delight to dwell among us. But if we don't, uh, if we don't do that, uh, he goes on to warn that if we fail, you know, we, we must consider that we shall be as a city upon a hill. Um, but if we deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken and so cause him to withdraw his present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword through the world. We shall open the mouths of enemies to speak evil of the way of God. We shall shame the faces of God's worthy servants and cause their prayers to be turned into curses upon us till we be consumed out of the good land, whether we are going, et cetera. Uh, so I just thought I'd throw that in there. Well, Can I just for... say how much I love <laughs> Rosa quoting John Winthrop at length? Uh-huh. Three cheers and bravo, my friend. Well, I spent I... a long time uh, in college studying the, the American Puritans. <laughs> well, I, I knew, by the way, that as soon as you started quoting John Winthrop, Corey would just sort of settle in with a big smile on her face. That is exactly what I did. And it was like, and I, oh I my could gosh. have gone on, but I decided to spare you the other dire prophecy. Well, brings- we, we, we shall surely perish out of the good land, whether we pass over this vast sea to possess it. Well, we, let's let's pick up on that point. Um, <laughs> and it, it, well, you know, Evelyn mentioned earlier the pursuit of happiness and. Pursuit of Happiness was a, a an American modification on the John Locke idea, which was at the time linked to prosperity. And it reminds some of us who studied that kind of thing that John Locke himself, when he was writing about these sort of fundamental principles by which we, you know, that we celebrate to this day, was actually also on the board of the organization that was overseeing the slave trade in England. Um, and so there is a, you know, kind of a fundamental hypocrisy that underlay that. Um, and it, the, my point is that what w- Winthrop was warning, that we always have to make a choice. And the idea that, you know, we were perfect or we, you know, something to that effect um, is, 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 has never been true. What's always been true is that we always have to struggle that there is always a choice. And if you are not vigilant, then you lose what you've got. 
um, and that this is a dynamic thing and you can't rest on your laurels. And so, Corey, I sort of turn that to you and I, I give you the choice of responding to Winthrop or to Locke or, or both. So what I love about the United States as a hegemonic power is that we become, we had become more liberal as we grew more powerful, right? The United States in the 19th century was democratic, but not liberal. Obviously a, a slaveholding country, the the story of westward expansion is the story of disenfranchisement, displacement, and outright murder of Native Americans onto whose land European Americans were encroaching. Um, the, all of the ways in which after Reconstruction, at, as the great new biography of Grant shows, um, Americans lose heart to enforce the, the things we hold to be self-evident throughout the defeated Confederate states. But what, what has been so magnificent about the American experience is as we have grown more powerful internationally, we had been growing more liberal, more willing to voluntarily constrain our own power to allow weaker states to have equal stature in order to legitimate our own strength um, and, and prevent them from organizing against us and encourage them to cooperate with us and share burdens. And, and that, was the, that was the real beauty of the American-led international order. And what is so shocking to me Right now, I take Rosa's point that a lot of these policies might have been in place, just not enforced, or they were a bug and now they're a feature of the policy. But, and um, I think a lot of journalists and a lot of liberals hyperventilate about policies they don't like on President Trump's behalf and act as though they are threats to the republic as opposed to the natural consequence of elections. I, I seed all of that, and yet these last two weeks have been genuinely shocking to me um, to, to see an American government behave in the way our government is behaving and to, to defend it, to pretend it's not happening, that if this is who we are, we really don't deserve our strength, our prosperity, or our security. Oh, that is a um, tough place to end, but it's where we must draw this episode to a close. Uh, and I think, honestly, it's where we are in our national debate and where we are as a country. And I'm really grateful for you guys to sort of frame it as you have, uh, and to have a bit of a, uh, a step back uh, to just sort of test and see whether the strong rhetoric we're using um, is fair. Uh, we're going to continue that in the next episode, so join us again uh, later in the week for another episode of Deep State Radio. And meanwhile, 
Uh, thank you to Corey Shockey, and I hope you feel better. Thank you to Rosa Brooks and your villa overlooking the Mediterranean. Um, uh, and thank you to Evelyn Farkas and your villa overlooking Cleveland Park. And, um, Rock Creek Park. Oh, yeah, Rock Creek Park. You know, beautiful Rock Creek Park. And um, we'll see you all again real soon. Deep State Radio is a production of the Deep State Radio Network, a division of TRG Interactive Media. Our podcast today was produced in cooperation with Goat Rodeo Productions and was supervised by Ian Enright. Join us again for another episode of Deep State Radio. If you don't, we know where to find you.